0: we got an, an interesting email from someone who said, "Hey, Carol, the coach. I want to know what to do if my partner does not want to stop sexual addiction." And I gotta tell you, if you're a partner and you've got somebody in your life that you love a lot, and yet he doesn't or she doesn't seem to be wanting to do what it takes to stop sexual addiction, then you've got to deal with that reality. You've got to make the decision yourself whether you can live with that or not. Now, here's what I believe. You cannot put up with that. There is no doubt in my mind that you can't, put up with the fact that you're going to get second servings or maybe first servings, but someone else is going to get second servings. That means that you have to say to yourself, what am I willing to tolerate? What do I deserve? And what should I put up with? And when you do that, you quickly decide what are your boundaries. If you're a partner and you don't know what your boundaries are, get with a certified sexual addiction therapist or an APSATS therapist. That's capital A, capital P, capital S, A, T, S. And decide with that person, what are your bottom lines? You know, I know this is confusing. I know your whole world's sprot but you've got to know within yourself what are you willing to put up with. And that can be very, very difficult and disheartening because you love that person. You don't know what to do. Now, I have plenty of sex addicts who say, Hey, Carol, I'm making positive changes. I'm going to 12-step groups. I'm working on empathy, communication, and my partner doesn't seem to notice all the good work I'm doing. What can I do? And I got to say to you, this can feel very frustrated, frustrating because for the first time in your life, you're doing the next right thing. And the person that you love is not noticing the changes. Now, if I'm talking to the partners, they'll say, I am not going to pat him on the back for normal behavior. I am sorry, but I'm just not going to do that. And that's when I ask you, as a sex addict, To be able to validate yourself, you know, that can be very, very tough. How do you see the changes that you've made, appreciate those changes, because you and I know how difficult they are. You know, it's like an alcohol or a, um, a drug addict. Someone may say, well, who the heck cares? if he or she refrains from cocaine use. But if you're a drug addict and coquish is your drug, every time you walk away from that or you stop yourself from putting yourself in that situation, you are practicing healthy behaviors. And sponsor... The fellowship, or a good therapist will pat you on the back because we know how doggone hard that is at the beginning of your recovery. Now, anybody who's in great recovery will know, okay, that in and of itself doesn't seem that big of a deal because they're already way beyond that. But for most people listening to the show you're struggling, you've got one foot in recovery and you've got one foot in old behaviors that take you down the road of addiction. And you are struggling to make the next right decision. And I applaud you. You know, that's where somebody in our business, we know how difficult that is to do better. And although we are doing cartwheels, I can't tell you how many clients I've said, if I weren't in culottes, I would do cartwheels down the hall. You know, meaning I want to have a parade for you because I know this is a big deal. And yet, here's what I know to be true. I'm going to tell you a personal story. My husband is in 23 years of alcohol recovery and his sponsor does not even believe in giving him a token, which is a coin or a chip for each year that he has maintained sobriety. You know, he's of the old school that says, if I have to give you uh, a recovery chip for your progress, There is something wrong. You should just be thankful and grateful to God, your higher power, that you have made it this far. Now, here's what I know to be true. When my husband had 10 years recovery, and I did not know him when he was a full-fledged alcoholic, waking up in the middle of the night to drink, um, at 10 years... (laughs) I wanted to give him that 10-year token because it was a symbol of his progress. And I knew his sponsor wouldn't, and I did give him that 10-year token. And we had a big party, and his sponsor was there, and he's a great guy, and he chose not to give him a chip, a token. Now, fast forward 20 years. Well, I got him a 20-year token. And I'll be doggone if his sponsor didn't give him a 20-year token. And I knocked him on the shoulder and I said, I thought you didn't do that. And he said, well, Carol, you gave him his 10. And I thought to myself, there is no reason you gave him his 10. You didn't know what he was like before. I'll give him his 20. And, boy, I got that because Rick had been there for my husband for a long time, way before he deserved that one-year token, let alone that 10. And so he basically, he didn't want to be outdone. He wanted to be the person who gave him that acknowledgement of doing good. Can you all tell I have a cold? I have got the worst cold slash cough, so just bear with me here, to my clients who want their wives or husbands to give them kudos for doing the next right thing. Okay, your partners don't have to do that. As a matter of fact, it makes them mad oftentimes when they have to because they say, and I get this, Why do I have to remind and reward him or her for good behavior? This is behavior that any spouse should participate in. And you know I get that. I'd prefer that you do give them the acknowledgement, unless you absolutely know that your addict's partner doesn't want that. You've heard me talk about it before. There's these five languages of love, and people love to be loved by gifts, by words of affirmation, by quality time, by acts of service, or by physical touch. And if your spouse is a gifts or words of acknowledgement, which come on, words of appreciation, words of affirmation, words of acknowledgement are all about getting those special kudos for being who you are, then really I understand why you want those special gifts. And interestingly enough, I taught the course. I taught the course for my church and many other churches. And when I taught the course for my church, my husband, for the first time in his life, went to the early Sunday school service. Literally, we were a um, Saturday night at 5 o'clock kind of couple. That wasn't my orientation. That wasn't my choice. But my husband really didn't want to have to get up early to go to church, so that was our compromise. So when we went to the Saturday evening, service. Everything was copacetic. But when I agreed to do this class, he knew he had to get up early and go. We didn't know that he had to, but he wanted to because he didn't want to look like a bad spouse. Now, my husband is not a bad spouse, but he cares about church and he doesn't want to look like he'd endorse it. So he'd show up, we'd show up, and um, we did the test. If you go to five love languages, you can take the test too you and your spouse and see how you connect so he'd go to he went to the classes and he participated and you know what he did most of the time, he made fun of me. You know if we talked about acts of service, my husband is a doer, he's a cleaner, and um There's a whole area where you list, what do you do, what what does your spouse do? And I have to admit, I didn't do one-tenth of what he did. Because when I did it, he'd do it over me. And I'm like, honey, I am not stupid. If I wipe the table, you wipe the table after me, I'm going to stop wiping the table. And he'd say, you know what, that's a good idea, honey. You don't need to do that. And when I would vacuum, he would vacuum over me. And I'd go, honey, I am not going to vacuum the living room if you're going to go right over me and vacuum the living room. And he'd say, you're right, honey. I do it so much better than you. Don't, don't even bother. So I learned that, you know, we both had different roles and cleaning wasn't one of mine. Even though I cleaned appropriately, I didn't have low self-esteem about it, but I definitely didn't give it the energy that he did. Well, at this uh, church Bible study that I was presenting, he would love to let the congregation know that I did not do anything nearly as extensively as he did. Now, I got good self-esteem. I did not let that hit me personally. I just kind of giggled and said, I'm not stupid. I'm not going to do a toilet bowl if he thinks he can do it better. And I had women coming up to me afterwards going, oh, my goodness, that is incredible, Carol. You've never had to do a toilet bowl? And I said, only one or two times. So now I'm going to ask you, you know there are things that your spouse does better than you do. And do you just take that into consideration and know that that is one of his gifts or her gifts? Uh, Are you able to say, yes, and I can give him or her words of affirmation because that's important? Because you know what? What we have to do in a partnership, in a coupleship, is to acknowledge what does our spouse do? that does make a difference. And if you've been betrayed by sexual addiction, it's easy to say, you know, I've been so betrayed I cannot acknowledge anything that my spouse has done to make a difference. But the truth of the matter is if you're with a spouse, you have to be able to do that. You have to acknowledge their strength. Yes, I'm Carol, the coach, and I'm here to tell you that it does matter what your spouse does. And I actually have an expert in the field of coupleship, and she's going to talk a little bit about how do you recover from the betrayal of sexual addiction and what are the roadmaps that you can take to make your life better. So, I'm happy to acknowledge our guest, who has just done a great job of contributing towards the health of couples. Christina, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: Absolutely. And tell me, what made it your mission to work on coupleship?
1: Well, you know, I've been doing uh, I've been doing work with addictions for a long time, and um, you know, it was kind of funny how I got into working with sex addiction. So I've worked with chemical dependency for several years, and uh, I was actually watching a show on TV called uh, "Sex Rehab" with Dr. Drew, and uh, I became fascinated with um, with the trauma model that they used around sex addiction, and uh, I just thought it was opened this whole other world of, uh, of working with addiction. So I, uh, I did the training, and I just found it was incredible. And since I've been working with people individually, I was really finding that I wasn't able to get to some of the root of the relationship issues. So mm-hmm. I started doing some work learning the Gottman Method and emotion focus therapy and then kind of blending the two models together. So blending the couple's therapy and the training I had done with that, also using the work of, of Patrick Carnes and the uh, the model, the sort of being a certified sex addiction therapist.
0: And so obviously you have expertise in sexual addiction, which really I think is imperative when a couple works with sexual addiction mm-hmm. and they either work with a CSAT, a Certified Sexual Addiction Therapist, or an APSAT, and that's somebody who works with partner trauma. And so mm-hmm. what did you learn about coupleship and sexual addiction?
1: Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that I found very interesting was that when there is um, any kind of an addiction in, in a coupleship, the the impact on the partner is is very similar to going through infidelity and so what what i found interesting was is if there's a competing attachment in a relationship and that could be um you know somebody that works too much somebody that's addicted to alcohol or sex addiction or infidelity the impact on the partner is is very traumatic and so I think that understanding, I didn't realize how it applied across so many different issues, but it made complete sense because basically there's a competing attachment in the relationship. There's essentially a third wheel that's um, taking away from that bond.
0: Absolutely, and there might be a third wheel or there might be a combination of third wheels. I mean, you can be Absolutely. a workaholic still be a sex addict or a drug addict and a sex addict, so after yes. you figure that out, that, you know, there is this special dynamic to addiction, tell me a little bit about that roadmap that helped you to help couples get
1: through the betrayal and the recovery. Mm-hmm. Well, I had worked a lot with um, with individuals, so, um, you know, sex addicts individually on their recovery using Patrick Kearns' task-based model. And I worked with partners as well using some of the great materials and, you know, um, Mari Lee and Stephanie Carnes' work and, and many others. But putting it together and looking at the relationship was actually a, quite a different experience. And what I, one of the models that I found very helpful was the model of John and Julie Gottman's work. They've, they've done a lot of work with couples looking at um, 40 years worth of research, looking at over 3,000 couples and looking at which couples stayed together, which couples um, became divorced, and what were the components of a healthy relationship. And what they found was when there was infidelity or betrayal in a relationship, that they used a model called the three A's. And so that really became my roadmap for working with couples, um, of course, using all of the, the sex addiction um, work as well. But the first phase of that roadmap is called atonement. And what that really means is it basically, I see it as, as a crisis stabilization because a lot of people believe that, you know, when it comes to addictions that you shouldn't do couples work early on. And um, I haven't read any research to support that idea but in, in chemical dependency that has very much been the norm even when I started doing work as you know there's a codependent dynamic you shouldn't be working with couples but then when I would see these couples and I would see how how overwhelmed and how desperate and how much heightened emotion there was and, and how much confusion there was I really felt like it was important to have some structure and stability in place so with the first um, part of this roadmap is looking at atonement. Um, basically, what we're looking at is we're looking at um, clarifying any information that that spouse needs regarding the betrayal. So um, as you know, Carol, we do more of a formal process called disclosure, where the addict will will formally write out and prepare to tell their spouse all of the details. But this is more of, of theirs, you know, immediate information that needs to be clarified, so whether that person has acted out with other people, um, because then it will be important to get um, an STD test. Um, another part of it is, is that, that the betrayer, so in, in this situation, the sex addict, needs to accept full responsibility and needs to be willing to be accountable and reliable to this process. Um, Well, and yes, one
0: of the things that I absolutely know for any of our listening audience that may have never heard of a disclosure or they've heard of one and they want their counselor to do it, Mm -hmm. I tell you, make sure that your counselor knows what an accurate and healthy disclosure is, because if Mm -hmm. you're listening to this, a disclosure needs to be done by somebody who's certified and trained to make Mm -hmm. sure that you as a, a as the betrayed has support and that there is an actual yes. line that both the uh, addict and and the, the partner goes through because this is so traumatic in terms mm-hmm. of the actual process, but really it saves you from years and years of trauma if information mm-hmm. leaks out, hurts you. And Absolutely. I know you know, that you absolutely agree that this process has to be done in a healthy and a structured way.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I think that it is very important that it be done in, yeah, very structured and um, and way where both people feel supported and there's a lot of clarity around what we're doing, why we're doing it, because a lot of people have a lot of fear around the process of disclosure. And I, I think it's interesting in, in some of the research that's been done, you know, by Corley and Schneider that after it is done that ninety percent of people feel that it was worthwhile, even though it was extremely painful to go through.
0: One hundred percent and yet Corley definitely thinks that it's gotta be done as a process whereby there's a the structure that will mm-hmm. help both parties feel safe and stabilized, and they'll have the support they need before, during, and after.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So the other thing that um, that we talk about in the early process of, of kind of the stabilization phase is, um, you know, how how are people going to handle um, if there is a relapse or a lapse into, you know, sexual addiction? And I say this over and over again that, you know, relationships can survive addiction, but they can't survive dishonesty. So it's really important that if there is a setback or that person, say, you know, this the, the addict does look at pornography or something happens, that there's immediate honesty. Um, because as difficult as that is, it's much harder if a person is lying and lying, maybe lying to me, lying to their partner, and then it comes out months down the road, it really does um, make it feel like the therapy um, wasn't really worth working very well.
0: No, I absolutely agree. And almost every partner I've ever worked with can accept that there may be some slips that um, contribute to the need to get back on track, but if there's a lot of lying involved,
1: that's Mm -hmm. what...
0: Breaks that that trust that they are so much looking for. I mean, partners are looking for security, connection, and trust. Mm-hmm. And if that trust is violated be- because of additional lies to get out of things, then there's not much hope for the coupleship
1: yeah that's that's probably been one of the hardest um, challenges that I've encountered with um, working long term with couples is is when someone has been doing a couple has been doing well, that the the sex addict has been doing well, and maybe they do have a setback and maybe it's a year into recovery. And um, I've had it happen a couple of times where that the addict hasn't come forward and hasn't um, been honest about that right away. And uh, it is very – it's really kind of heartbreaking for everybody because so much work and effort has been, been put into this process. And so I, you know, I really try to emphasize that and, and also just a lot of transparency and accountability because, you know, with trust building, even, even if a spouse is late when they say they're going to be home at a certain time or, you know, they are – you know, the spouse finds, you know, something – out of character, like lottery tickets in their pocket or something like that. Those little things can set off major alarm bells in that spouse. So even un- any unreliability can be really, really upsetting for the trust-building process.
0: Absolutely. So just talk a little bit more about that roadmap and what do clients sure. need to do if they're in a coupleship and there's been sexual addiction.
1: Sure. Well the first thing I think is to to really stabilize and try to find a, a team of support. One of the things I notice is is that there's a lot of of shame and stigma and secrecy around sex addiction. And it's really important that you have people that you can talk to that are um, that are trained and qualified, but also going to be non judgmental. So for a lot of the, the couples that I work with, um, it's a little bit tricky because they're they're isolated. They they might be talking to me or they might be going to group therapy, but their family and friends often don't really know about what's going on. So one of the things that that we talk about is having at least one person that's close to you that you that you can talk to that will be supportive of you and your relationships because. A lot of people, maybe in the heat of the moment, they're angry. They might talk to, you know, their friend or, or someone in their family. And if they're, you know, putting their partner down, um, and then later on they decide, you know what, we do want to stay together. Sometimes it's really tainted that relationship um, for the, for the family, and so they have a hard time looking at that person, the same again because they know this person has a sex addiction and they know. They've they've hurt, you know, they've hurt their mom or they've hurt hurt their daughter. So we try to stabilize um, some of the damage around just maybe telling people for a bit of revenge or um, just to kind of get the word out there.
0: Okay, and so obviously you've made it your mission to work with couples. Tell us why.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I I think my own my own perspective is that relationships, you know, at the end of the day, our jobs come and go and, you know, possessions come and go. But relationships are really, I believe, the most important thing that matters in our lives. And if we marry someone and, and they're struggling with an issue, um, it can really impact our relationship and impact that bond. And so I think it's really important that that couples and people have a chance at a healthy relationship because we know that it impacts people's um, happiness. It impacts their lifespan. And for so many of the couples that I've worked with, they've been through so much trauma in their family of origin. And I, I really believe that they both deserve a chance at real healthy love. And that's one of the, the most rewarding things about doing this work is um, you know, I get to meet these amazing people that are, have survived these really, really horrible, horrible situations. And they, they learn how to deal with emotion. They learn how to share about their feelings. And in a way, they've experienced things that they've never experienced before because they've, they've been courageous and strong enough to enter this journey into recovery.
0: Well, no kidding. And so for our listeners out there that are sex addicts and partners how do you begin to help a couple rebuild trust
1: mhm that's a really big one so the the research that that John Gottman and his colleagues have done has found that trust is built in small increments so you can say that you know you want to change and you can um, apologize but trust is really built through action so one of the things that we talk about early on is to really um, be quite open and transparent with um, with sharing, like emails, sharing texts, really making your your phone and your computer available to your spouse on an ongoing basis, so that if they if if they feel the need that they want to to check to see if you're if you're doing what you say you're doing, that there's some there's some access because. If a, if a sex addict is really secretive or defensive around those things, um, it kind of sends a message sometimes that, that they are hiding something or that there is something more going on. So the first piece is around transparency. Um, not that that's going to go on necessarily for their whole relationship or that that, um, like, say, if the spouse is checking or, um, you know, almost being kind of an enforcer or, a kind of a police role, that, not that that's a healthy dynamic that we want to continue on forever, but there has to be some willingness to share information and to be open. Um, so that's the f- first part of it. But the other piece is that um, from the spouse's perspective, they've been traumatized, and they really need to see that their partner is, is there and that they want to be there and that they're not going anywhere. So one of the things that we work a lot on in the early stage of therapy is um, establishing that, that um, the sex addicts, that they're committed to this process and that they're willing to do what it takes. So that they're not, they're not gonna run when things get hard and um, they're not going to, you know they're not in the marriage or the coupleship just because it would be um, inconvenient for them to not have their spouse. So really establishing that that person wants to be in that relationship. So with my couple, sometimes we've spent, you know, a significant amount of time on just establishing, you know, why do you want to be in this relationship still after you've betrayed me? You know, um, why are you here? Um, do you love me? Do you want this? So that's, that's a piece of that. And also um, just answering Answering questions, you know, clarification questions that the spouse has, um, that's a little bit different than the process of disclosure because that is more of a lengthy structured process. But if the the spouse has, has questions, you know, on, you know, you know, when you told me, you know, two years ago when you said you were going to your father's house, you know, were you acting out that night, you know, questions like that can really help to build trust because it's helping to make sense of that partner's inner world. So those are some of the things that we do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That would definitely help to kind of rebuild trust, to be able to ask those questions that, you know, maybe aren't disclosure disclosure questions, but they are definitely mm-hmm. questions that help to rebuild that that state of trust. And I say, you know, partners need, first and foremost, three things. They need safety and security, they need connection, and they need trust in that order. Mm
1: -hmm. And so
0: sometimes those kind of questions establish trust, but what they really do is establish safety, safety of can I believe him
1: or her. And Mm -hmm.
0: that is so important in a coupleship. So now tell me, how should couples proceed with sexual intimacy when they're still a little bit ambivalent about can I Mm -hmm. really trust him or her?
1: Yeah, you know, that's that's a really important question. And for a lot of my couples, you know, sexual intimacy is off the table because, from a partner perspective, um, that part of their relationship has been so tainted and damaged that, um, from the spouse's side of things, they they're they're just comparing sometimes their bodies to you know these airbrushed you know women that um, their partners might have been acting out with or been been viewing online, and also they they really feel like that part of them, that really sacred part of their relationship has been taken and, and given to someone or something else. So um, from the, the sex addict's point of view, we often do recommend a period of abstinence um, from an addiction perspective to allow that person to go through some withdrawal from the addictive behavior. So if it's pornography or other things, and also just allow them to lean on other coping mechanisms because for so many of the clients I've worked with, they, they use sex as a way to disconnect when they feel stress or they feel intense emotion. So we typically recommend that period of abstinence of, of three months is typically what a lot of people start off with. And then from there we kind of decide what, what feels healthy for the couple. So, you know, in my experience, it really is a case-by-case thing. Um, I've had couples that have been sexual, um, you know, a month after the betrayal, Um, and typically what we talk about is 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 the sexual activity, is it bringing you closer together, or is it something that you're doing um, maybe from the spouse's side out of maybe some desperation or some anxiety that if I don't have sex with my partner that he might go somewhere else or he might relapse? Um, and then from the sex addict's point of view, are they, at, are they having sex with their partner because they're trying to channel that sexual energy um, somewhere else? So we have pretty, some pretty honest conversations about, you know, if a couple says, you know what, we had you know, sexual relations last weekend, you know, how was that? How did that go for you? Did that feel comfortable? And, and did it lead to greater intimacy? Um, and in some cases, it, it actually is, is a, a healthy thing for the couple. It's kind of a sign that they're, they're forming um, a connection. But for a lot of people, that damage um, takes a long time to repair. And what a lot of people realize, and and I think you know our culture isn't alone in this, is that you know, to have a healthy sexual relationship or healthy sexuality is really a complicated task that is almost its own journey um, in and of itself. So, to stop looking at porn or to stop a sex addiction is is one is one thing. To stop that unhealthy behavior, but then how do you actually learn how to um, relate to someone in a healthy way sexually, and how do you allow yourself to be vulnerable with someone? when maybe sex for you is a way to just turn off your brain and, and just shut off. So that's a piece where we, we talk a lot about um, kind of defining safety for each other and going slowly with that process. So it might mean, you know, I, I really like the um, Ginger and Bill Burka's book um, that on sexual reintegration therapy, we use that a lot. in my work with couples and, you know, how to, how to start slow with, with just some of the emotional intimacy so that it can hopefully build more of a healthy sexual intimacy. So in short, it's something that is, um, it's a case-by-case basis, but in most situations it starts with, with a significant break and then would kind of gradually move toward um, sexual integration. But I've had some couples that they, they haven't had any sexual activity in over a year and that was a decision that they both consciously made, um, mostly in, in this one situation. It was because the, the sex addict I was working with, he, he had said, you know what, I, I don't know if I trust myself yet um, to be sexual and I feel like I need to do some of my own work because I don't want to enter into being sexual with my wife and feel like I'm objectifying her or using her. So in that case, he was very honest with himself.
0: Well, and I know that I, I work with a lot of partners who, too, wonder if being sexual will trigger the addict. And clearly, yeah. the addict has to be able to have an intimate type of sexuality where they don't go into fantasy, they don't go into pornography, mm-hmm. they don't talk about their prostitute or their masseuse mm-hmm. or their affair partner. And. You know, my experience is, like so many marital therapists, that intimacy means that you have to really be able to stay in the moment. And we Mm -hmm. always talk about eye-open sex, which means your eyes should be open, you should be studying your partner that you love, you should be in the moment, you should be appreciating the closeness, and sometimes for um, an addict, that may be the first time they've ever really been present with their partner, Mm -hmm. ever. Yes. And so that is a very intimate moment if they can do that. So I appreciate the partner who says, no, I want to become a little bit safer before I take on this exercise. But for those couples that want to begin to develop that, then that means they really have to do whatever it takes, to be very, very present, to appreciate
1: mm-hmm. who their partner
0: is in front of them, and have their eyes open so that they don't go to any kind of euphoric recall
1: mm-hmm. or fantasy. That's a really good point. And I think a lot of a lot of the men that I work with, they have a lot of fear and shame around the, you know, the pornographic images or the, the euphoric recall that, that does get triggered for them. And so, you know, what I'll say to them is, you know, that's normal. It's, it's a natural trigger because it's been paired and associated with, with sex for you. But, but try to just be kind to yourself but just gently bring yourself back to the moment. And so I really like your, you know, how you described it really well of just your eyes open, being mindful, being in the moment. Because that experience, that sexual experience, being present and open and vulnerable is very different than the high Of acting out and um, it probably is going to take some time for that person to get adjusted and acclimatized to that new and different kind of sexual experience
0: well yeah and for couples that aren't sex addicts you know so many times a healthy couple may close their eyes and they may experience some pornography or a past relationship Mm. and And that in itself isn't a problem because it hasn't originated from anything um, that is compulsive and obsessive. Mm
1: -hmm. But at the
0: same time, when you really want good, healthy intimacy with the person you're with, whether you're an addict or not, it's about really appreciating the person who is right there with you and feeling vulnerable, Mm -hmm. safe. And sexuality is all about that. So for any addicts or partners that are listening right now, just know that this may be a common issue for a lot of people, but it may have different um, points of origination of difficulty. I mean, clearly, Mm -hmm. sex means being very vulnerable, and it means really staying open to who you're with, and that is, in and of itself is tough, and so a certified sexual addictions therapist may work with you on that and or may refer you specifically to a sex therapist to help you to develop mm-hmm. those exercises. But I, I agree totally with you, Christina, that Bill and Ginger Percaw, they have two great books. Um, In the Bedroom is one of them, and then you referenced mm-hmm. um, which book?
1: Um, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but the, the, in the title, it's about sexual reintegration therapy. Yes, and, um, and they're really it's the, good at
0: creating those exercises that just are not only sexual,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but they're about vulnerability at its finest. And, and that's truly what intimacy is all about. It's being absolutely vulnerable with your partner. So now let me just mm-hmm. ask you, um, There are some common dynamics, couple faces in the early stages of sexual addiction recovery. Can you talk about those and then the triggers that are handled in each of the phases?
1: Sure. So one of the things that I notice for couples in, um, say, around the three- to six-month mark of of being in recovery and, and let's say they're coming to therapy or they're doing group therapy as well is from the sex addict point of view is they're actually feeling a lot better. Uh, they're feeling a sense of relief that they don't have to live a double life. They're, um, they're really just enjoying um, getting to know themselves and, and knowing that there's a whole um, terminology and um, they can see themselves in a lot of the sex addiction writing and, and workbooks and they, they feel less alone. So they're actually starting to feel pretty good at this point um of course there's a lot of shame and remorse as well but they're starting to feel like they're shifting and they're moving forward but for the spouse because the spouse is um a lot of times new to this information or new to the acting out there things almost seem to get worse for them at this point and the the emotions are so up and down they might be feeling rage one minute and um intense grief and sadness the next and then numbness and they don't maybe they don't even know if they want to be married or in this relationship. And so what happens is is that there's a fundamental mismatch that I see a lot where one the sex addict might be feeling really good and alive and, and this vitality and the spouse is just going into this pit of despair. And so what can happen is if if they encounter triggers as a couple. You know, let's say they're watching TV and there's an Ashley Madison ad that comes on, or there's, you know, some kind of sex scene. Um, what happens is is that it's very triggering for the spouse, and they might become upset and they might move into rage and you know say, "How could you do this to me?" Or, you know, maybe less kind words. Um, they might they might get really angry at their partner. And what's really common is 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 the addict, they might snap back a bit and they might say, well, you no, know, we've been working, we've been going to therapy, you know, when are you going to get over this? And that's probably the worst thing <laughs> that someone can say um, to a spouse because what happens is from the spouse's perspective, it it's really invalidates their experience and um, can really be damaging for trust building because... It's, in a way, it's threatening the relationship because that person is saying, you know, if you better hurry up with getting over this because if you don't, then, you know, I don't know if I want to stay married to you. So now I know, of course, this is not intentional by, you know, the addict at all because they're just becoming defensive because they're feeling attacked. But what we really work a lot on is how to manage those triggers as a couple So that instead of of turning against each other and and arguing is they can use it as an opportunity for trust building. So let's say if we use the TV example that that person can, um, you know, maybe turn off the TV and say, you know what, honey, I see you're upset. Let's talk about it. You know, tell me how much it hurts. And if they can withstand, you know, their feet being held to the fire a little bit, it does actually really help to rebuild trust. Um, now, I know it's hard because from the addict's perspective, they're feeling their own shame. So to feel their partner's shame and to feel their partner's rage is um, it's like a hot potato. They want to pass it on. But it's really important that, that the addict responds in a non-defensive way when their partner becomes angry um, because it really does help to rebuild trust. Oh, I 100%
0: recommend that and agree with it totally. Now, what happens if you know you're developing trust, things are going really well, and the the uh, addict slips or relapses?
1: Hmm. That's a really hard one, and you know, it's it is one of those things that where honesty is really important. And I I've seen it unfortunately go the other way, where the, the addict might lie about it and and keep it secret for a little while until they feel comfortable. Saying something or until their partner finds out but it, it really is just about about just facing it and and being honest and sometimes people will you know talk to me about it and make an appointment with me just to talk with me about what has happened um, and then immediately after that, they'll go and they'll tell their spouse um, or will will I try not to ambush the spouse with with that information um, and just bring them into a session and kind of lay that on them but it's really important that we deal with it head on. And sometimes it's a, it's a real wake-up call. You know, I had a couple I was working with where the, the addict was, was having an emotional affair. And he didn't see it as acting out because he wasn't looking at porn or wasn't going to see escorts. But it was just devastating uh, when this information came out. And what came out of that was is it really shook their relationship down to a core where it actually helped move things forward a bit because what we realized was that that person, the addict, um, he was doing therapy and he was doing well with um, not looking at pornography or other things, but he really wasn't looking at um, some of his underlying issues. So for some situations it can actually be um, kind of propel us forward into getting into a deeper stage of, of treatment or recovery because um The surface stuff of just coming to therapy and just kind of doing what you're supposed to do and then going home and you know going through the motions um, wasn't quite wasn't really working for this couple.
0: Yeah, I absolutely think that a lot of times, the couples that I work with, the partners would rather hear the truth voluntarily. And know mm-hmm. that that's the process by which the addict is getting going into recovery because they're being more honest about their slips, their relapses, their triggers, tribulations. And and they can live with that because the addict is being honest. And that's
1: Absolutely. the process
0: by which they can build trust. So
1: Yes, I agree.
0: What you recommend for couples? What What do you tell them to do, or who do you tell them to study, or watch, or read? Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, I yeah, absolutely. I um, actually, there's there's a lot of great resources out there. You know, um, I I created um, a free download off of my website for couples, and and anybody can download this. It's it's free. If you go to my website, christinabell.net and you go to, to the tab that says free, there's actually um, a betrayal or a trust building recovery kit. And it's just a, a Word document that you can download. It kind of walks you through as a couple, through those first couple of months and you know, what to do, what not to do, um, how to deal with triggers. Um, it has, has a book list too in terms of, of um, looking at trust rebuilding so I would say to anybody that's, um, that's curious is there is a really good book um, by John Gottman called um, What Makes Love Last? And it looks at a lot of um, the issues around betrayal and some of the research and some of the things that are helpful. I also really like Shirley Glass's book on infidelity. It's called Not Just Friends. Um, that's one that I've, um, I've used a lot. It's not specific to sex addiction but it does a really good job of speaking to both sides of a, of a coupleship in terms of what the experiences that they're going through. It looks a lot at the trauma reactions. And again, it gives you some of those practical um, do's and don'ts. And um, And there's another good book that I, I recommend a lot as well it's called Living and Loving After Betrayal. And uh, the author is uh, Stephen Stosny. Um, that's another really good one. Um, there's also a lot of really amazing um, books related to sex addiction as well. And, um, you know, I really like um, Alex uh, Alexander uh, Katahaks' book, Erotic Intelligence, is really good for couples. It speaks more to the, you know, the sexual reintegration and healthy sexuality piece. Uh, I really like the Burkha book as well. But in terms of looking at um, the betrayal piece, I, I think it's really important that you – that you find someone that you can talk to about it. And for a lot of spouses, they have to look at getting um, some form of trauma treatment because the, um, the intrusive images, um, the hyper arousal, that the intense anger, the intense sadness, um, you know, there's definitely a lot of support needed in that area. And for some people, their sleep is really disrupted. Their health is really impacted. So we talk about going to see a doctor and, you know just making sure that you're, you know, getting a blood test done, looking at your thyroid levels, looking at your health. Um, a lot of the work I do in initial the stabilization phase is around just basic self-care. Um, because people's worlds are turned upside down and if they're not eating, if they're not sleeping, it's going to be extremely difficult to do any of this work.
0: Okay, so tell us one more time. I know that we can go to Christina and that's C H R I S T I N A Bell dot com. That's right. And you said B- the dot free net actually,
1: read- N E T. Yeah. N-E-T. So if you go to ChristinaBell.net, dot net and then there's a little tab that says free, F R E E, if you click on that, there's actually a bunch of free downloads um, that you can that anyone can download off of my website. And I have actually a sex addiction recovery kit. I have a partner recovery kit and I have a betrayal recovery kit. So anyone can download those. And what it is, is it's really a roadmap for the first three months of after discovery, after discovering your spouse has a sex addiction and entering into recovery. So it has um, pages like a a book list. It has links to different videos. Um, So it's really just... um, I tried to make it quite simple because I know people, when they're, when they're really stressed out, it's hard to read a lot. It's hard to concentrate. But I tried to just create some worksheets that people can download um, just to get started.
0: Oh, very good point, and I appreciate that. Yeah, right now I am ordering all of these things are for free, the Sexual Addiction Partner <laughs> yeah. Recovery Kit, the Betrayal Recovery Kit, and you can never go wrong with the mindfulness meditations for anxiety, emotion regulation about, yeah. and the sexual addiction recovery kit. So, Christina, I mean, you've got a lot of free things going on here. Now, do you have yeah. any products, books, or projects that you'd like us to pay for?
1: <laughs> you know what? Um, you know what? At this point, I just really enjoy. I really enjoy creating them, and I think that. Um, I'm just happy for people to have access to them. So, you know, down the road, um, you know, I might, um, I might have something that uh, maybe is more substantial that I would, would charge for, but you know what, I'm, I'm absolutely okay for anyone to download these. And I am right now, I'm, I'm working on a breakup recovery kit, which I hope none of the people listening to this ever have to go through, um, but it's worth it. I work a lot with young people in breakups and trying to help them through some of those tough you know first breakups when they're in the early 20s and you know so I'm creating a breakup recovery kit that I'll have up in the next couple of weeks and I'm also creating a love addiction recovery kit as well so so yeah so feel free if anyone can can come check back and, and download um, I'll just keep constantly adding things to it so
0: well, and just a couple of weeks ago on our listserv, we were told to look at a YouTube video of you talking on a new show. Oh, right, right. And you kind of teased and said, I'm not a doctor. but tell us <laughs> yes, about they called me a doctor. Um, yeah, tell us about right, that right. that segment and how can people see that?
1: Sure. So, um, if you go to um, so there's, I live in in a city called Edmonton, and it's in the province of Alberta in Canada. And there's about a million people in Edmonton. It's the capital city of of our province or state, as as you call it in the states. Um, and uh, just one of the news um, organizations just asked to interview me about rebuilding connection around Valentine's Day and what just really easy things that couples can do. So. Um, so that's just a really short clip, and it's also on my website as well. If, if you go to again ChristinaBell.net and you look on my um, my videos page, there's a, a tab at the top that says videos. It's the first video that comes up, and it's just a little clip. But it was kind of funny because um, in in Alberta, I'm a psychologist, but um, but I don't have a doctorate degree. So the uh, the news the anchor woman she called me doctor so um, I kind of got a chuckle out of it and so did my my uh, my family and friends because (laughs) I'm not a doctor I'm not a medical doctor or (laughs) doctor philosophy so I just put a little um, disclaimer at the top of that so
0: absolutely well you know Christina I cannot thank you enough for these roadmaps to recovery I mean the couples that i work with want to stay together they want to build again that security connection and trust and i admire the work you're doing keep it up i i'm so happy that we got connected and from time Thank to you, time you it, yeah as you continue on with your projects keep me posted let me know and we'll interview you further about other great things that you're doing with couples with sexual addiction
1: Thanks and thanks for all the great work that you do. I've I've known about you for a long time, and uh, it's really it's it's kind of uh, exciting to be able to speak with you. So I hope we we cross paths, and you know I'm going to be at the uh, ITAP conference this this year. So you know hopefully we can can meet in person at some point.
0: Well, you are um, a great interview, and I got to tell you, I won't be there this year, but I'll be there next. I go every other year, so hopefully oh, we'll. Oh, okay? It's cool. I know Mari yeah, will help you. us together, that's for sure.
1: That's right. That's right. She, she's amazing too, yeah.
0: And thank you for the free downloads. It's not just couples that need them. We as therapists, and I've got a lot of clinicians listening, need to see what other clinicians are doing to help couples to get healthy. So thanks again.
1: You're very welcome. Take care, Carol.
0: You too, Christina. Talk to you later.
1: Okay, okay Bye. Was-
0: Bell, and she can be reached Through bell That's C-H-R-I-S-T-N-A Bell um, .net And she obviously has a lot of freebies Take advantage of them Would you? I mean we just can't get enough free stuff And now we need to end the show It's already after 10 Guys As you well know, I am here for you. I'm here to disseminate all the information you need to get healthy. But first and foremost, I want you to be authentic. I want you to be transparent. I want you to be honest. And I want you to be authentic. So please, fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And if you do, Things will work out the way they need to. You'll have a better relationship with the person you love, or you'll be better off loving yourself. Have a great week, and I'll see you next Monday night for more sex help with Carol the Coach. We'll talk to you next week.